Yeah, I actually wasn't on campus today. I was receiving text messages and talking to some of you. And yeah, I, it was a scary day. And uh, though in the end, I know, look back and uh, we're very thankful that there ended up being um, uh, no threat and no uh, no injury. I want, to hear you, I, want to, I want you to hear me say, though, what happened today, uh, like, man, it was real. And that sense of, like, felt sense of loss, of safety, and uh, what's going on here, I, and it is like, it is okay to kind of mourn the felt loss of that. Because I, it was just kind of this reminder that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And like, it's okay even if you're looking and saying, yeah, but there wasn't even really, thing to, really anything to, that happened to say, yeah, but I really experienced trauma. Yeah, because you felt the loss of safety. And that's not the way things are supposed to be. And it's the reason that when Jesus walked this earth, he was a man of sorrows. He wept all the time. And so I'm thankful you're here because, I, you know, whether you believe the Bible or not, I don't know. But what the Bible says that we need is we need the church. In other words, we need each other. And there's something good about coming together and realizing that we're not alone. And what we need is God's Word. We need the truth of who God is and who Jesus is to kind of come in and remind us of what's real. So let me, I'm going to pray uh, now and even kind of pray for the campus and, um, and then kind of get started. Let's pray. Father, uh, yeah, today was a scary day. Some, um, for some people, much more scary than others. And we, we, we do thank you that uh, in the end there was um, no loss of life. There was no um, uh, injury. Uh, that what ran through our minds of the evil that could have been done uh, did not happen. But, Lord, there's probably still uh, shock and trauma, and I pray, Lord, that you would show up and be the God who you say that you are, that you specialize in bringing order out of chaos and bringing life where there's darkness, where we need you to be a good shepherd. Right? I pray for uh, the individual who's in custody, that he would know that you're a God of mercy uh, and a God of, uh, who comes into chaos uh, and loves people. Lord, what we need to hear now uh, is... Is from your word. And so would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see that you are on your throne uh, and you are good. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are kind of walking through Genesis semester, kind of putting before you every week that if, you know, if you were to read Harry Potter starting in book five, you would still get a sense of the story. You'd still enjoy the read. But you would miss so much. You'd miss so much of the foundation and the beauty. And I'm, I'm suggesting that maybe some of your boredom with Christianity, maybe some of the kind of confusion about who you are and what's going on in this world is because you forgot the beginning. And so we're going back to the beginning of this story, which is the true story of our world, and examining Genesis and seeing if it won't be, bring clarity to who we are and to who God is and what's going on in this world. And so tonight, I want you to think about if, and this would be kind of hard to imagine, but if you and a friend, for some reason, were walking around and had no category for what a wristwatch was, okay? 
Like you'd, ne- you'd never seen one, didn't know what it was. And let's say you came upon one in a box, and you pick it up, and you and your friend start trying to figure out, what is this? What would you do? Right? I, you know, I don't know. Maybe you'd throw it around. Maybe you thought it was a toy. Maybe, maybe you'd figure out you could wear it. But the best thing that you could do to figure out the purpose and value of the watch is if there happened to be directions and you could go back and see what the designer designed the watch to do and and function with, right? Then you would know. And what if that principle is also true of not just complex machinery, but something even more complex called humanity? That what if your purpose and why you're here and who you are is actually only going to make sense if you go back to the instruction manual, back to the designer's design in Genesis, and you might actually discover who you are and what you were made for. So Genesis 1 and 2 in this true story, it is man's first appearance on stage. This is him. This is humanity as God designed it to be. So I'm, I'm going to suggest that this is actually the key to anthropology. Like, who are you really? Let's read uh, God's Word together. Genesis uh, 1, starting in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the every living, every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The grass withers, the flowers fade. Word of our God, it stands forever. Okay, who is man supposed to be? I want us to see kind of three things. Reflectors, rulers, and resters. Anthropology 101. Here we go. Reflectors. This is what you suggest. This is what you see in verse 26 and 27. The creation narrative, if you start right at the beginning, it slows down a little here, and you see the special emphasis on what God's about to do as God consults with himself. He says, let us. It's actually the language of the Trinitarian nature of God, which we're going to talk about next week. But you see this picture of divine deliberation and special thought about what God's going to do next. And what happens next, it's supposed to take your breath away. Because the God of the universe says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And then he sums it up again in verse 27 by saying, male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. And God forms something in his image. And what God is doing here, before we learn anything else about who we are, he's saying this. I want you to understand, before man appears on the stage for the first time, I want you to understand how special and how valuable humanity is to God. 
Because God is saying, I'm making mankind in our image, in our likeness. What does that mean? It means a lot, but I want to consider one aspect. It means that God has stamped mankind, male and female, to be His representatives in this world. He has created humans to represent what He is like to the watching world. To represent Him all over the world. He has made man in such a way that we're, when we're around each other, and even when, this, when the trees are around us, all that kind of stuff, we are supposed to experience what God is kind of like. We are His representatives. So think about this. When, uh, when President Obama appointed John Kerry as Secretary of State and sends him to the Middle East for an assignment, when John Kerry goes as Secretary of State, he is representing someone. He is, in a real sense, representing President Obama and all the dignity that that entails and the United States. And he carries that respect with him. And we know this. If someone in the Middle East were to spit upon the Secretary of State's face, that's more than a smear on him personally. That's a belittling of the dignity of the President of the United States and of the United States itself, right? And so when God forms his image, not in angels, which is amazing, not in other animals, but in humanity, he stamps this incalculable dignity and value upon every single human, regardless of age, health, religion, sexual orientation, uh, economic bracket, or even your morality. He says, you are my representative. And I would just ask you, do you feel the weight of that? The Bible says humanity is specially made by God. And God doesn't make trash. He doesn't make junk. And so it doesn't matter who you are, what your background is, what you have or haven't done, what's been done to you, you are valuable to Him because you've been stamped as His representative. You're made in His image. And I would just ask you to consider that without the basis of the image of God declaring your incalculable uh, value and dignity, the only other way that you can start placing value upon individuals and humans is based on their usefulness. If you remove this aspect of the Bible's idea of the image of God, then people are valued according to their usefulness and their capacities. And I would just say, consider this. Is it therefore any surprise that on campus and, well, and in our world today, that it is the unuseful that get pushed to the margins of society and even our campus? The elderly, the infants in the womb, the sick, the poor, the socially inept. Because... Without the image of God, we declare people's value based on merit and usefulness. And so those people get pushed to the, to the margins. But secondly, consider this. The, that means the person sitting next to you, every person that crosses your path today or tomorrow carries the image of God. And so carries this just infinite dignity as God's representative and therefore is worthy of respect and reverence and kindness and gentleness. Right? The New Testament writer James 
In chapter 3, he says this, With the same tongue we bless God, but then we curse His image. And James is pushing on our hypocrisy. Especially if you consider yourself a Christian. Because what he's saying is, if you are a Christian, it is foundationally hypocritical to say that you love God and then to treat His image as trash. You can't do that. So to say that we love God, but to dismiss His image in any form is foundationally hypocritical. To say that we love and respect God, but then tear someone down with gossip or cut someone down with that look that says, you don't matter. It's hypocritical. There's this quote on your uh, page from C.S. Lewis where he says, There are no ordinary people. You never talk to a mere mortal. It's immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. It's a serious thing to live in the society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you'd strongly be tempted to worship. Feel the weight of what he's saying. But I want to tease this out in another direction. The image of God, the Bible's claim that everyone has God's likeness in some way, it means we have to respect one another. And it means this, we have to try to build relationships with people across racial lines and economic lines. Look, I can say this because I am upper middle class and white, okay? I'm as white as they come. So I'm going to critique, I'm going to critique my world, okay? But if you are in my world, realize this, the world that we function in, for the most part, it is a white upper middle class world. And so we function as if a way that we are the ones to be learned from. Our way of living is the thing that you've got to understand and respect. And so other races and other economic classes, they have to take on the posture of respect and learning and listening to move within our culture at Mississippi State. But don't you kind of sense the belittling of the image of God that that creates? That the whole dynamic is disrespectful? That you learn from us, we don't have to learn from you. But the image of God, and let me just speak as a Christian, means that we Christians who are white need to take the posture of learning and respect with African Americans. Because there's a beauty of African American culture that that reflects the beauty of God that we don't have. And we need to sit as learners. And there's an African-American culture that understands what suffering and holding on to Jesus is like that most of us don't know. And we need to learn and we need to respect that. And we need to move into those relationships. And so the image of God brings incalculable value on everyone and, and gives us a reason to respect and be kind and be gentle with everyone. And it's historically speaking... Why the church, I'm not saying we've done this perfectly, actually there's tons of sin. That's why the church historically has always been the champions of the poor, of women, of orphans, of all the people pushed to the margins. Because of this, the image of God. It's why the image of God means that the unborn infant's life is immensely valuable. And so we... So we see abortion for what it is. But 
But the image of God also means that if you're a, a female tonight that's had an abortion, we treat you with dignity and respect. And we don't shame you. The image of God is a big deal. You've, you've been made to reflect Him. You were made in His image. Secondly, we're made to be rulers. Verse 28 through 31, after stamping His image upon humanity, God gives instructions. And all these constructions are connected with being His image, of reflecting who God is to the world. And so if mankind is to represent God on earth, that means how we function, how we live in this world is supposed to give people a taste of what God is like. Which is why things like forgiveness and gentleness and patience and truthfulness are what we're supposed to be like because be like, those are life-giving because they're a taste of who God is. But then also, he talks about work. He says that... Um, because we've been made in His likeness, we've been given dominion over the earth. So what is that dominion? What's that work supposed to look like? Well, don't forget last week in Genesis 1, we saw God as a ruler. God is one who has dominion. Everything that He does brings life, brings beauty, is about sharing. And so it shouldn't surprise us that as God's instructions to humanity are for us to be fruitful and multiply, to bring life, and to subdue the earth and have dominion, what does that mean? It means that we're to rule in such a way that makes this world flourish and brings out all of its beauty. Because that's what God's like. That's what He does. And I want you to feel the freedom of this. One of the primary things that I know I hear from a lot of you is like, what am I going to do with my life? And I understand sometimes we're like, paralyzed by the fact there seems to be an infinite number of options of what you could choose to do with your life and there's this lie that whatever you decide to do as long as you're tried it you can do it that's just a lie okay there's no way I could ever be a musician though I wanted to be but when it comes to the Lord and how he created us to function hear me say this there's no levels of dignity to God's work there isn't Christian work on the one hand and secular work on the other the Bible doesn't have that category. Anything that makes this world a better place, anything that creates beauty, anything that brings restoration, that's a good thing. That's how God works. And so, if you take random musical notes and instruments and you make a beautiful melody out of that, God loves it. Because that's what He's about. You don't have to add Christian lyrics to make it Christian. Actually, sometimes that's really bad music. He wants things beautiful. If you take pieces of metal and you put it together to make a beautiful building and home, yes, that's how God works. He takes chaos and brings things into order. If you take minds of students as a teacher and you fill them with knowledge and beauty, yes, feel the freedom of the dignity of work that God has given humanity. And you've already heard me say this, but that is why it's not... It's appropriate and not silly to mourn today. Because today was scary. And today felt like a place of chaos. And that's not the way things are supposed to be. And, it's, and you felt that trauma. Because God has made a world that He wants to be flourishing and beautiful and orderly. And so He's made us to be reflectors. He made us to be rulers. And lastly, He's made us to be resters. God has been saying all throughout the story of creation, it was good, it was good, it was good. 
It really brings him pleasure. And then God forms man. And in verse 31, for the first time, God says, it was very good. He finished making male and female, and he seems to take this extra delight in the pinnacle of creation, his representatives, and all that he's done. And he says, it was very good. And then there was morning, morning and evening, the sixth day, and the seventh day begins. And what does God do? God rests. He's finished his work. He takes a day and he enjoys everything that he's made. He delights and loves everything that he has created, especially man. And he makes the seventh day holy and he sets it apart. And when you connect the seventh day with the rest of the Bible's teaching about the Sabbath or, or the day of rest, I think this is fascinating. What you realize is this, that the first day of the first full day of humanity's existence, how's it spent? It's spent resting. The first full day of Adam and Eve's experience is at rest. It's spent enjoying everything that God's made, enjoying God's love and delight of them, and them giving back the love and delight he deserves. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Can you imagine what it would be like to be completely at rest with who you are and how God made you and you knew that the Lord of this universe approved of you and took great delight in you and you hadn't done anything? Can you imagine? And see, I love this. I think what God is putting before us right here in His Word is God is saying, look, the first full experience of a day that humanity is going to bring, that humanity is going to experience, is going to be this. All day, they will freely receive God's delight and God's love and respond in worship without ever working. It's almost as if God is saying this. You need to know, man, that you aren't going to work for my approval. You aren't going to prove yourself to make me like you. You're going to rest in it. That's the posture. And in that little notion, I don't know, maybe that's the key to humanity. How in the world will we start treating people according to their value as God's image? How will we start not treating people according to their usefulness or what they do for us? And how do we start making things beautiful in this broken and messed up world? Perhaps as if there's a way that we receive, not earn God's approval. Where we receive and not earn God's acceptance. Where we receive and not earn God's delight. Maybe it's through grace. I've told you this before, Caitlin Corbett got me on uh, this podcast, StoryCorps. Don't listen to it unless you want to cry every time. But there was this segment, it really was amazing, where they... um, they did these kind of few interviews with, um, uh, with moms and their uh, children with Down syndrome. And they kind of did a live interview. And so this, this um, Josh was his name. He's 23 year old, three year, three years old. He's talking through his experience growing up with Down syndrome. And after kind, of, after kind of him telling his story, the mom says, Hey, Josh, did you ever have dreams about what you wanted to become? And he said, I had lots of dreams. But really, I had two. I wanted to become a minister, and I wanted to become a WWE wrestler. 
He said, I wanted to be both of those because I wanted to make my parents proud of me. And there's this kind of kind of silence from the mom. Because, right, Josh had never become those things. He'd never become a minister. He'd never become a WWE wrestler. And the mom was taking it back and she goes, Josh, do you think that we're proud of you? And Josh said, I know you're proud of me, Mom. You love me with this everlasting love. And she kind of began crying and she said, Josh, do you remember what we used to always say when you were a kid? And he said, yeah. And she said, I would always say, you're my Josh. And he said, and you're my mom. And you're my Josh. And you're my mom. And you felt this beauty roll over, really over Josh, as she was pressing in. I don't love you because of what you tried to do for me. I love you because you're mine. And the reality of being made in God's image, the way it's going to... Look, it takes on this incredible new reality years upon years upon years later. You want to see the dignity of humanity? As God himself comes and takes on human flesh. And Colossians 1 tells, tells us that Jesus is the perfect image of the invisible God. That in, in John, Jesus says, when you see me, you see the Father. In other words, everywhere Jesus goes, he is perfect, the perfect man and God. He is always functioning exactly as the perfect representative of who God is. And therefore, what would you expect? You'd expect him to bring life. And he starts healing the sick. He starts raising the dead. What else would you expect him to do? To start loving outsiders. And he does. And he goes to the prostitutes. And he goes to the sexually immoral. He goes to the people that nobody else will go to. And he declares that he loves them. And then it gets even crazier. Because he actually goes to a cross. And on the cross, the image of God... And here you go. You're going to hear the kind of echoes of Genesis 1. On the cross, as he is dying for the sins of us, of all of our ripping apart of each other's humanity, he cries out, you ready? It is finished. Once again, God cries out, it is finished. What is finished? All the work that's required to make you pleasing and a delight to the God of this universe. That's what Jesus accomplishes as he takes on the image of God and does everything that's required to make you right with God. And that's the offer. To rest in his work. To rest in the, in the complete image of God, Jesus. In his forgiveness, in his righteousness. And you can know that the God of this universe is well pleased with you. Delights in you. Not because of what you do for him. But because he says, you're my Emily. You're my hunter. You're my bride. And you're my father. As you experience that God doesn't treat you according to your usefulness, it changes your eyes. And you begin to treat others according to their dignity and how God sees them. Because that's how you got treated by the Lord of this universe. Wouldn't it be amazing if you discovered that salvation is, is in resting? That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, would you, uh, would you show up tonight... And convince us that even amidst chaos today, you are at work. That you hate evil so much that even when it covered your own son, 
You poured out your wrath on it. But you love your image so much. You love mankind so much that when we have ruined ourselves in sin, you took on human flesh and became like us so that we could wear your beauty and your righteousness. Would you help us to receive that tonight? In Jesus' name, amen.